Christ. So let's get into our study of Romans today. I hope you got your Bibles and they're uh, open, getting turned on right now to uh, Romans chapter four. We're beginning a new chapter. We're gonna be in verses one uh, through 12 today. And uh, before we get to work on this passage, I wanna remind you uh, where Paul has taken us so far because it matters to what we are reading in these verses. Uh, you will remember, I hope, that in Romans 1, 18 through Romans 3, verse 20, Paul showed us in great detail our universal problem as human beings, which is sin. And he confronted us with the fact that we are great sinners. And then a couple weeks ago, we were in Romans 3, 21 to 26. And in verse 21 of the third chapter, Paul uh, opens this new section of his letter of Romans, which tells us that we have a great savior. It is the gospel. It is the good news. It is the wonderful news that Jesus has come as the universal solution to our universal problem of sin. Maybe you'll remember two weeks ago when we studied uh, chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, uh, we saw that, that Paul uh, was beginning in these verses to tell us how uh, Jesus solves our problem, how we can be made right with God. And we saw the essence of the gospel in those verses. And the gospel, Paul says there, is that God makes sinners righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus died on the cross, he says, for the sins of the world. He propitiates God's wrath. He satisfies God's righteous wrath against sin. And when we believe, Paul says, God graciously justifies us. He redeems us. He gives us Christ's righteousness. And it's all, Paul says, by grace, not by works. But here's a question that's kind of lingering, and maybe it's a question that you have found yourself asking. What does faith look like, that faith that saves? It's a question that Paul is aware of, and so in Romans 4, he gives his analysis of faith. In Romans 4, Paul is going to unpack faith. He's gonna help us understand what true faith, the faith that saves, really is all about. And again, he's been talking about faith. If you'll remember uh, all the way up to this point in Romans, how essential it is for salvation. Uh, Romans 1.16, our very first memory verse, which I told you a few weeks ago is the very key verse in Romans. Paul says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who what? Believes, right? That word believe is the same Greek word as the uh, Greek word that's translated faith. Faith, Paul says, is the means by which the power of God comes into us and saves us. And again, a couple of weeks ago when we were in that passage 321 through 26, we looked at verse 22. And in that verse, Paul says that God gives his righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In other words, to all who show faith. So faith is how we receive God's righteousness. So the question is, what is faith? What is faith? This is a word that's very, very commonly used in a whole lot of different ways. Have you noticed that? You probably have friends, family, coworkers, all kinds of people in your life who regularly use the word faith in a way that's very, very different from anything the Bible ever talks about. You know, people all the time, secular people, 
will say, you got to have faith, right? Well, what does that mean? Faith in what? And quite honestly, what it means for most people is you have to have faith in faith, which is not real helpful when you really stop to think about it. Is that what, what Paul is talking about? You know, we say that we're part of a faith, the Christian faith. Well, uh, Muslims and Hindus are part of a faith, so they have faith, a faith of a kind. Is that what we're talking about? And, and even if you get into different Christian groups, denominations and churches, they will define faith in different ways. So, so what is faith all about? What does it exactly mean? That's what Paul's gonna be talking about, this analysis of saving faith here in Romans 4, where he unpacks this and he helps us to understand it. Maybe this is real personal for you. Maybe you would say, well, I've been taught and I believe and I know that we're saved by faith, but I wonder sometimes if I really understand what that means. I wonder sometimes if I really have that faith, that faith that saves. Some people, I've met a lot of them, kind of think that faith means you pray to prayer. And some of you think like that, and then if you do, you probably have found yourself wondering if you prayed the prayer right. So do you really have faith? Maybe you think faith is about certain kinds of feelings of repentance, and if that's the case, then you find yourself wondering, well, how strong do those feelings have to be? I don't always feel repentant. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Do I feel repentant enough? Like, do I really have faith? Maybe you think that faith is about how devoted you are to Jesus, and then the question becomes, well, how much devotion is enough? Because we all know no one is ever totally and completely devoted, right? I mean, if you say you are, well, you need to leave because we have no perfect people allowed at this church, and so just go on somewhere else, right? (laughs) So what is faith? What does the faith that saves really look like, and how do you know if you have it? Well, Paul is answering these questions in Romans 4, and he's going to do that by looking primarily at the life of a man named Abraham, also um, at the life of a man named David, and then along with something else that he had experienced in his own life, and we're going to learn what faith truly is about, the faith that saves. And we're going to cover verses 1 through 12 this week, and then finish Romans 4 in a couple of weeks where we'll be able to see Paul's completed argument about faith. But here's how Paul begins his analysis with faith. He begins with this man named Abraham. And here's what we learn from Abraham's life. Faith trusts in God's righteousness, not good works. Faith, the faith that saves, is a faith that trusts in God's righteousness, not good works. This is verses one through three. Follow along as I read. Paul writes, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, Paul's choice of Abraham as an example is very strategic. Abraham is one of the most important characters in all of the Bible. Uh, The Jewish people saw Abraham as the father of their faith. And so Paul is going to demonstrate that Abraham, he was justified by faith. And he wants us to see that if Abraham, the father of faith, was justified by faith, then we should expect that it's going to be like that for us as well. And again, don't forget that the church in Rome is comprised of of both Jewish and Gentile believers. 
and that some of the Jewish believers in Rome were kind of wrestling with what they had heard, maybe what they thought Paul might be teaching about the gospel. It's evident as we continue in Romans, some of them are wondering if Paul is teaching something new, if Paul is kind of unhitching the faith from the Old Testament and the law. And, And Paul wants to show them that what he's teaching is what God had been telling them all along. You know, sometimes people ask uh, me, how how do people in the Old Testament receive salvation? It's a question a lot of us have wondered about. And if you ever have, well, again, you're going to see here Romans 4 answers your question. So how was Abraham saved? Verse 2, Paul raises this question. He says, was Abraham justified by his works? And Paul says, well, if he was, then he would have something to boast about God, uh, before God. But think about it. We were there last week. Paul has just finished telling us at the end of chapter three that the gospel rules out boasting. We said no pride allowed. So it can't be that. Paul says, no, Abraham was justified by faith. He said, that's actually what we see in the scriptures. In verse three, Paul writes and quotes Genesis 15, six, which tells us that Abraham was justified by faith. It says Abraham believed, same word for faith, God's promise that God would bring salvation to the world through one of Abraham's sons and God counted that faith as righteousness. You see, when Abraham believed that God could make his descendants into a great nation, that one of his own descendants would be uh, born one day, come to this earth, bring salvation to all of the peoples of the world. When Abraham believed that, God counted that as righteousness. Now, verses four and five show us kind of what you might call the inner logic of faith. Verse four says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And we all get this. This is the premise behind every job you have ever done. You do the work and you get paid for it, right? Is that how it works? Everybody say yes. That's the way it is, right? So you know when your employer hands you your check, uh, he's not giving you a gift, right? Right? In fact, no one gets their paycheck and looks at their boss and says, you are such a kind and thoughtful and generous person. Thank you for thinking about me. This is just what I wanted. You don't do that. You don't say that because your paycheck is what your employer owes you. And see, Paul is is pointing out that this kind of is really the way a lot of people think about God. They think I do good things and God pays me back. God owes me. He rewards me with eternal life. See, we talked about this earlier in our series. Every religion is based on this idea, I obey and therefore I'm accepted. And different religions depict this in different ways, but it all comes down to the same thing. We work and either God or one of the gods or the force or whatever pay us or reward us because of our obedience. That's how it's supposed to work. And Paul is telling us, really, there's a lot of problems with this idea. One of them is that when we do good works to earn our salvation from God, it means that we're not doing them because we love God. We're doing them because, ultimately, we love ourselves. 
We worship ourselves, which, oh, by the way, is idolatry. Oh, by the way, that's the, the root of all sin. I mean, think about it like this. If I am kind to you with the ulterior motive of earning eternal life from God, that has to mean uh, that I'm not really that concerned about being kind to you. I'm really concerned about me. And you could probably think about this in a lot of of different ways. Um, uh, Maybe one of them would be like when you go to get a cup of coffee at a coffee shop and they have the tip jar there. It says, welcome, you know, thanks a latte, you know, and you're supposed to put something, you're supposed to put something in the jar. And so you decide you're going to do that. And you know, right, are you with me here? The only reason you're doing that is because they're watching you, but you, you, get the, you get the money out of your wallet or your purse, and right when you're about to put it in, the barista turns around. Now you have a dilemma. Because like, if they don't see you put it in the jar, does it count? And then like, what, what if you've already put it in the jar and they didn't see it? You know, so you're not gonna get credit. All right, like, do you reach in and pull it back out of the jar so you can put it back in the jar while they're watching? But, but if you do that, what if they turn around while you're pulling it out of the jar? That's even worse. And let's not, let's not even get into those things where you put your credit card in and then they like demand that you give them a tip right there, right? How many of you would agree with me that you have given way more tips than you ever would, despite all the native goodness of your own generous, generous heart, you just give more tips because that thing's right there and you don't want to say no. Because you think someone's watching whether or not you do it. See, this is all about the same thing. We are doing something good so that someone will think something good about us. You know, with the coffee shop, it's not like you really care that much about being generous to the baristas, you really just want them to think you're a good person. You're not really motivated by any love for them. It's just love for yourself. And Paul says it's just like that when you're doing good works to earn acceptance from God. It's not really God you care about. It's yourself. See, now Paul, Paul says the gospel works on a different premise. This is verse 5. He says, and to the one who does not work but believes, there's that word, believe, faith, same word in Greek, believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith, this is again the same word, his faith is counted as righteousness. So what does that phrase does not work mean? Well, it it cannot mean that Christ followers shouldn't worry about doing good works because the Bible is crystal clear. Every person who follows Jesus is called to live a life that is filled with good works. But what it does mean is this. We don't do good works as a mean of establishing our righteousness, as a means of obtaining salvation and eternal life. You see, when it, when it comes to establishing our righteousness, instead of us doing good works that we will expect God to reward us for, Paul says here in verse five, we believe in him who justifies the ungodly. We have faith. And that means 
in the context of what Paul has been writing, that we believe that God accomplished what God said he accomplished when he sent Jesus, his son, to the cross to die for you. You believe that Jesus died to pay for your sins, that he received God's judgment on sin, the judgment that you deserved. And when you believe that, and when you receive that, and you receive it as truth, truth for you, it's reality for you. You make it your own. Paul says when that happens, Jesus Christ's righteousness is counted as yours. I don't know what translation you're reading out of, but did anybody notice how often this word count or counted appears in what we've read? It's the central word in Romans 4. It occurs in verse 3, 4, 5, 6, 8, 9, 10, 11, 22, 23, and 24. Over and over again, Paul uses it, and it's an interesting Greek word. It's the, the Greek word, which is pronounced logizomai. It's often translated count. Sometimes it's translated credited. Maybe you have a translation that says imputed. That's not as common a word today. But it means when Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, and when you receive what he did as your own, just like I said a minute ago, God counts that, logizomai's that for you. God puts credit for Jesus' life and death into your account, and he puts credit for your sin into Jesus' account. See, logizomai actually was a business word, an accounting word, and it really means to give something a status that wasn't there before. Here's one illustration maybe will connect with some of you. Maybe you've been uh, in a home where you were in a lease-to-buy arrangement. You know how those work? So you, you make rent payments, you're leasing the home, but you have the opportunity in the future if you decide to, to buy that house later, and when that happens, your past rent payments will be counted or credited as mortgage payments. In other words, those rent payments will gain a new status. Well, in the similar way, faith is the instrument that gains that credit. Faith is, is not just believing in God or believing in Jesus kind of in general terms. Saving faith, the faith that saves, means that you actually believe that Jesus actually died on the cross and he actually paid your debt of sin there on the cross and then you place your life's trust in that. The idea of faith kind of contains in it this concept of, of putting our weight on something, right? Of leaning on something. Tim Keller, uh, in his commentary, calls this a trust transfer. And I love that phrase, a trust transfer. You, you no longer trust in, depend on what you have done, your good works. You now trust in what Jesus has done. And it's not like you stop doing good works. It's that you stop trusting in those good works to earn you righteousness and eternal life. You've probably heard this illustration. It's one of the most common illustrations of faith, and I think it makes the most sense. And actually, you are experiencing it right now um, as you are sitting there listening to this message. It's the illustration of sitting in a chair. And so faith is, is like this. When, when you are standing like I am, you know, when you're actually working instead of just sitting and listening 
When you're standing, you're like depending on your legs, right? You're trusting in your legs to hold you up. But the moment you choose to sit down, you are transferring your trust from your legs to that chair. Does that make sense? Now, your legs haven't stopped working. You've just transferred your trust to the chair. And when you become a Christ follower, you are transferring your trust for eternity from your own good works, from your own righteousness to Jesus' perfect finished work on the cross, Jesus' perfect righteousness. So here's the question. Have you truly transferred your trust for eternity from your good works to what Jesus did on the cross. See, this is what faith really is. Do you have it? Are you living it? Do you know it? Jesus calls us to faith, and that faith is trusting him. When I was growing up, and uh, we were taught you know, how to share our faith, and many of you will relate to this, you experienced it too. One of the most common ways we were taught to witness, to share our faith was to ask this, this question if you're talking to someone. And the question, it would go something like this. If you were to die tonight and God were to ask you why he should let you into his heaven, what would you say? I always think it's interesting. Why do we think everybody's only going to die at night? You know, We don't ask people that they're going to die tomorrow. It's always at night. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, but you ask this question. And, you know, over the years, here are three of the most common answers that I've heard people give. I'm going to put them on the screen. The first one is, well, I've tried my best to be a good Christian. Sometimes people will say that. Second, maybe they'll say, I believe in God and try to do his will. Or third, maybe they'll say, I believe in God or I believe in Jesus with all of my heart. Now, here's the thing. As you look at those answers, and I hope you realize that, I hope you see it. But if you don't, I hope you'll see it now. Those are all wrong. Every one of those answers is incorrect. Every one of those, those answers is wrong because they're all essentially salvation by works. Now, the first answer, trying my best, well, that's pretty obvious, right? That's just straightforward salvation by works because you're like depending on your effort, your sincerity. The second answer is kind of a mix of salvation and works, the third answer is actually salvation by faith as a work. See, at first it might look correct, but what this is actually saying is something like this. Because I believed in God, that makes me a good person, and I think God will reward me. Now, here's the thing. In every one of these cases, the person is religious, but they haven't truly done a trust transfer this is not someone who is no longer working for their salvation. Here's what you need to understand. The only correct answer to any question that asks you why God should let you into heaven and give you the gift of eternal life is something like this. Because Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead to take my sin and give me his righteousness. Basically, if you answer that question and it's in any way referring to yourself, you're in the wrong place. That answer should always be pointing up, pointing to Jesus. By the way, I just want to be clear on this. We'll talk about it uh, more later. But faith or believing in God's promise, um, it's not a work. 
Sometimes people think faith is a work. It's not a, a work we can take credit for. The, you know, faith is simply receiving what God is giving us. It's simply holding out our hands, openly receiving what God has giving, given us. Now, Paul backs all of this up, uh, not with just Old Testament scriptures, but he makes two arguments I want you to see, and you, it'll probably help if you talk about this in your life groups this week. He says first, and this is in verse two, if it was any other way than by grace, by faith alone, if it was anything about works, then we would have, we would have something to boast about. We would be able to boast But he says, no one can boast before God. It's like Paul can hardly imagine the thought of someone standing before God, listing all of his good works, and then expecting ridiculously for God to congratulate him. See, that doesn't even make sense, but that's not all. Second, Paul says, if it's all about your good works, then God does actually owe you something, like wages. That's what he's talking about in verses four and five. See, if... If God accepted you, granted you righteousness on the basis of your good works, then all he would be doing is paying you a debt, giving you something that he owes you. But God is God and you are not. God doesn't owe anyone anything, amen? God is no one's debtor. So Paul says the faith that saves is essentially a faith that trusts in God's righteousness and not in good works. So as we live our lives, as we we think about who we are before God, one of the questions that we should all be asking ourselves is, is my faith being directed to Christ and to Christ alone? Or am I somehow, some way, thinking that what I am doing is earning me the favor of God. Anything less than fully looking to Christ alone is less than you know, full devotion and biblical faith uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, Paul looks at David and he tells us here that faith, the faith that saves, trusts in God's promise to forgive all my sin. This kind of flows out of his argument with, uh, with, with Abraham, but this is what he says next in verses six through eight. He says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts, that's Logizomai again, to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those, and now he's quoting, you see the Old Testament, you see the quotations? It means it's an Old Testament quotation. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count. Again, Logizomai, his sin. So Paul turns and he looks at David, and again, he's being strategic here, and there's two particular reasons. First, David was Israel's greatest king. David was like right behind Abraham in like the the pantheon of, of Jewish heroes. So he was an important figure. But secondly, Paul wanted to point out David because David is the greatest example in the Old Testament of a forgiven sinner. I think no one ever sinned more greatly, grievously than David. You remember what David has done? Had done. We we talked about his story a couple of weeks ago. How he slept with one of his closest 
friend's wife. He, he got her pregnant. He tried to cover it up uh, by having his friend, whose name was Uriah, uh, killed in battle. So that means David not only you know, sinned sexually, David committed murder through someone else's hand. And then he lied about it all. He took Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, as his wife to make it look like she got pregnant after they were married. And then he kept lying about it for about a year. And then one day, Nathan the prophet comes and confronts David the king. And when David finally confesses him, miraculously, amazingly, it all turns, it all pivots. Nathan says, God forgives his sin. And we read that, and it's this incredible, beautiful story. And we love that. And like I said a couple weeks ago, we love that unless you're Uriah's mom. I mean, what are you gonna say when you hear that, see that, and David murdered your son and he stole your son's wife. You're, you're gonna cry out, no, it's not that easy. And here's the thing, David knew that. He knew that he had done something worthy of death. And so he writes in Psalm 32, which is where Paul is quoting from here in verses seven and eight. He writes, I am blessed I am blessed because I won't be counted, logizomai, as worthy of death because someone else is logizomai with my sin, with death. He, he knew, looking forward to God's promise, that Jesus, God's son, Messiah, would be logizomai with death. And because he, Messiah, was logizomai with death, counted with death, David could say, I'm going to be logizomai, counted with his righteousness. And Paul is telling us here that just as it was with David, our sins, which also deserve death. Do you stop to ever think about that? Your sins deserve death. Let's just, let's just do this. It's good for us to say this sometimes. Just say together, my sins deserve death. Would you just, let's all do it together. My sins deserve death. Do you not want to say that? Do you not really think that? It's the testimony of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All deserve the judgment of God. Every single human being who has ever lived we all deserve death. And, and David, David confronted that. David knew, knew that. And, and that's why he, he was writing what he was writing. That's why Paul is telling us what he's telling us. He says, just like it was with, with David, our sins deserve death, but our sins have been logizomai, counted to, credited to Jesus, been covered with Jesus' blood so that Jesus' righteousness and Jesus' resurrection life could be logizomai, counted to us. Now here's what's interesting about what he's doing here, what Paul's doing here. With Abraham, Paul was showing us there is this, this positive counting or, or crediting of something, righteousness, to our account. But with David, it's like the opposite. God doesn't credit, God doesn't count something to our account. And, and David uses, there's two beautiful words um, in uh, Psalm 32 that, that Paul quotes here. The first word is in that phrase, our lawless deeds are forgiven. 
And this is without limit. There is no exception. Your sins can be forgiven. And we're meant to see that because David's sin was so horrific. And it's like whatever we have done, God can, God will forgive. God forgives your sins, even though you deserve death. Second, it gets even better than that. Our sins are covered. They're not only forgiven, they're also covered. Did you notice that? God covers our sins. It's this picture that our sins are no longer able to be seen. Does anybody here live with the knowledge, the awareness of some sin, maybe a lot of sins that you've committed and they're just there. It's like they're always in the back of your mind. You feel like you can't get away from them. They're staring you in the face. They're talking to you. They're just there. They're there. They're there. And you wish they would go away. See, Paul is telling us through David, they can go away because God wants through Jesus to cover our sin. Let me give you some verses. You can look these up later and just reflect on them. Micah 7, 19 says, I will cast all their sins into the depth of the seas. Micah had no idea how deep the seas were. And there's still places where the ocean is so deep, no one's gotten there. Places where it's like the pressure is so great, nothing can even sink there. It is dark as black ink at midnight. That's where God has put our sins. He's covered them. Isaiah 38, 17 says, you have cast all my sins behind your back. I love that. Because think about it, if if my sin is behind God's back and that's where it's gonna stay. Will God ever see my sin again? I mean, it's always behind his back. It's like my sin's back there. If God turns over this way, now it's back there. It's always behind his back. It's a picture, isn't it? God can't see our sin anymore because he's chosen to cover our sin for us by forgiving us. No matter where he looks, my sins are behind his back. They're covered And then Psalm 103, 12 says, so far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. You you know this, right? You can measure north to south. You go north, you're gonna get to the North Pole. If you keep going, now you're gonna head south. Same thing happens down at the South Pole, right? But have you ever thought about this? If you head east, you're never gonna get there. If you turn around and head west, you're never gonna get there. And there's a reason God used that picture to tell us how far away our sins are. How far are they? They are an infinite distance away. Our sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. Amen. Maybe you could kind of think about it like this. This will mean more to some of you than maybe some others. It's like being maxed out on your credit cards and Every month, they're just adding a bunch of late charges and more interest, and it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And and then one day, you get a statement in the mail that says that it's all been wiped clean. Pastor Chris has paid it off for you. Someone paid your debt. You owe nothing. You see, this is what it means. Oh, my goodness. When Paul says, God justifies 
the ungodly. You see those two things together? Look at that verse again. Ungodly, sinful, justified. Same time, this is this phrase we've been talking about in Latin, simultaneous et peccator, simultaneously justified while still a sinner. You don't work for it. God does it for you by his grace. You simply receive it. It's free. But never forget it costs so much. There's a popular author, internationally recognized a researcher on the subject of shame named Brene Brown. And she talked uh, some time ago about coming back to church after years away. And she talked about this moment that she said, quote, the whole Jesus thing finally clicked for her. She wrote, people would want love to be unicorns and rainbows. So then you send Jesus and people say, oh my God, how hard love is. Love is sacrifice. Love is trouble. Love is rebellious. As Leonard Cohen sings, love is not a victory march. It's a broken hallelujah. She says, love isn't hearts and bows. It's very controversial. She says, in order for forgiveness to to really happen, something has to die. And we talked about this. She says, whether it's your expectations of a person or your idea about who you are, there has to be a death for forgiveness to happen. And in all of these faith communities where forgiveness is easy and love is easy, she says, listen, she says, there's not enough blood on the floor to make sense of that. See, the reason that we can know forgiveness the reason that we can see that Abraham was made righteous and that David was forgiven his awful sin is because there's blood on the floor and it's the blood of Jesus. Jesus paid it all, we sing, all to him I owe. In Christ, our sins are covered and that's any sin, that's every sin. There are no exceptions There are no exceptions. Here's the third thing that Paul talks about, and this is something kind of drawn uh, from his own life. I wanna put it like this. Paul is telling us that faith, the faith that saves, doesn't trust in any external ritual or activity. Now, verses nine through 12 describe really what was Paul's life experience. The the Jewish people, they had looked uh, to this external ritual of circumcision. It was something God had commanded them to do. They were being obedient in doing it. Uh, It was traced back to Abraham. Look what Paul writes. He says, so is this blessing, and he's referring right here to what David was talking about, uh, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Verse 11 He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So what Paul is really asking and talking about here is, is this blessing of righteousness for all people? Is it just for Jewish people or people who 
do Jewish rituals and activities that God commanded them to do. Now, of course, Jewish people would have said it was only for the circumcised because circumcision was this mark of the Jewish nation for men and also for the the wives and the daughters that they represented. It was kind of like this passport that confirmed your citizenship. But Paul makes a very important point that the Jewish people had been missing. He goes straight to the Old Testament and he points out that Abraham, the father of the faith, had received this righteousness by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And you can go check this out. Just read it for yourself. Um, Abraham, we've already read Genesis 15, 6. That's where he's declared righteous by faith. That took place 13 years before Genesis 17 when he was circumcised. So why did he get circumcised? Well, Paul says that Abraham received it not to be made righteous, but he received it as a sign and a seal of the righteousness that he had already been given by faith. And Paul looks at that and Paul says, based on that, that means Abraham is the father of all who believe. No matter who they are, where they come from, whether they're circumcised or not, So in other words, the central question isn't have you completed the necessary ritual, Paul would say, but rather are you walking in the footsteps of faith of Abraham, our father of faith. Now, this is still very relevant today in different forms, and many of you have kind of personal testimony about this. Many of you were raised in a church where you were taught that if you completed certain rituals and rites, then you would be accepted by God. And it started like even before you knew. You got baptized, even as an infant, right? You had to do that. And, and then you got a little older, and you took your first communion. And, and then you, you know, began to participate in confession, and then you're confirmed. And it goes on and on and on. And Some of you have told me that you did all of those things without ever really having any interest in God or Jesus Christ at all. But there was a time in your life where you look back and you would say, I believe that that if I ever had to stand before a holy God, that he would be okay with me because I did those things. I completed the necessary rituals. And here's what Paul is telling us. God doesn't want ritual without reality. God wants us to transfer our trust. There's an old story. Um, I heard it recently, but it's been around, I think, for a long time. It was about this Jewish man who moved to a Catholic neighborhood. Story sounds like it was some urban city in the east, you know, um, uh, of our country. And, and basically what would happen is every Friday, this, the, the Catholics would go crazy because they could only eat fish on Fridays. You remember that one? And while they were sadly eating their flavorless fish, this Jewish man was outside happily barbecuing steaks. And so the Catholics decided they had to convert this guy. So they, they, they went to him and they talked to him. And after a lot of pleading, they finally succeeded. He agreed to become a Catholic. And they took him to the local priest who sprinkled holy water on him and, and intoned the words, born a Jew, raised a Jew, now a Catholic. And everybody in the neighborhood was ecstatic. No more delicious but maddening smells on Friday night, or so they thought. Very next Friday, the smell of grilled steak wafted through the air of the neighborhood, and the Catholics looked and they saw, and they immediately ran to this Jewish man's home to remind him of his duty not to eat meat on Friday. And when they got you know, to where he was in his backyard, they found him standing over the steak, and he was sprinkling holy water on the steak, saying, born a cow, raised a cow, now a fish. 
pretty silly story, I know. But that's ritual without reality, right? And, and that's what Paul is arguing against. Unless you hear me incorrectly, I'm not saying that this is a problem only for certain groups. We have this problem in our faith circles as well, just different forms. There's probably some people here that think if they take the Lord's Supper enough, if they get baptized, you know, if they come to church enough, if they give enough, whatever it is, that that will make God happy with them. But these things, even the things we're supposed to do, were never meant to be substitutes for the real thing. So I just wanna bring you back to that question I asked you a few moments ago. Have you truly transferred your trust to Jesus and his finished perfect work on the cross? Have you done that in your life? Have you asked yourself, just looked at your heart, talked to God and asked the Holy Spirit to show you where you are? I heard, um, I heard Tony Evans uh, that, that great African-American pastor, um, he once said that a lot of us have mutual fun faith. Now, if you're an investor, you may know immediately where I'm going with this. You know, in a mutual fund, um, you kind of mitigate your risks by giving your money to the mutual fund and they invest in like hundreds maybe of different kinds of stock. And if one of the stocks goes south, you know, others are doing well and it kind of works out better, you know, for you. And that may be a great investment strategy, but it never works as a faith strategy. See, maybe you're a person who's putting some of your faith in God and some of your faith in other places as well. Paul says the faith that saves is the faith that puts all its hope in God, the faith that leans all its weight on God's promises. I, I call this message trust fall because when you do a trust fall, when you close your eyes and you fall back, you only do that because you are trusting that someone will be there to catch you. You are transferring your trust in your own legs and body, your own strength to someone else, putting your trust fully, completely, totally on that person who is behind you. And I just wanna ask you one more time, have you done that with Jesus? Have you done that with Jesus? Have you believed the promise that God made that if you repent of your sins and believe in your heart that God has sent his son Jesus into this world to die for those sins and that God the Father has raised Jesus the Son from the dead to demonstrate that his death on the cross did indeed pay for those sins? Have you believed that promise and are you resting in that promise? Are you sitting down in the faith of the chair of Jesus' finished work, have you fallen back into Jesus' arms, confident that he will always catch you, that he will never let you fall? And here's the good news. If you've done that, then you are righteous in the sight of God and you have eternal life. 
If you haven't done that, the good news is you can do that today, right now. You can repent of your sin. You can place your trust in Jesus Christ and he promises he will forgive your sins. He will take those sins away. He will give you Jesus' righteousness. You will be adopted into his family and you will be with him one day in eternity in heaven forever. This is the faith that saves do you have it today? I want to bow, ask you if you would to bow your heads. Father God, we give you thanks today that we don't have to depend on ourselves, but that your righteousness is there for us and you give it to us and you never take it away. And then we simply receive it and lean into it, put our weight on it, transfer our trust to it, and know that you will take care not only of our today, but our tomorrow and our forever. I give you thanks, Father, for how you have worked in all of our lives. And I pray that if there is anyone here who's never taken that step of placing their trust in your son, Jesus, that they would do that even today, even now. Lord, I pray that you would call those who have done that but haven't yet stepped forward and received baptism as a proclamation that they have trusted you. I pray that you would call to them today, even now, and they will step forward and receive baptism. Lord, you are so good to us. You bless us in so many ways. We give you thanks today. And all God's people together say,